I think last week, Nick, our associate minister, was preaching. He said we've been going through Matthew's gospel for about a year or so now. Uh, Nick only arrived a year ago. It's actually been nearly six years, uh, (laughs) albeit with big interruptions. Uh, But we're nearly at the end. So could you come with me, please, to Matthew chapter 27? It's our habit on the whole here at church to try and preach through books of the Bible um, so that God's word is setting the agenda, as it were. And today we come to Matthew 27 and verse 57. These are ultimately the words, not just of Matthew, the disciple, but far more significantly of the Holy Spirit. So let's hear the voice of the Spirit to us today. Matthew 27 and from verse 57, Jesus has died. Children, Jesus has been crucified. He's now dead. And we pick up the story in verse 57. When it was evening... There came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who was also a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there, sitting opposite the tomb. The next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, After three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead. And the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers. Go, make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. If you've been in in churches any amount of time, you'll have heard, no doubt, sermons about the death of, of Jesus. In fact, almost every week you'll hear about the death of Jesus. Paul, when he went to Corinth, uh, said that he preached or he knew nothing with them other than Christ and Christ crucified. Wow. I mean, that is incredible. What is, I, I don't know, tell me afterwards what that is, but uh, just stop it happening. Um, absolutely extraordinary. Uh, Many sermons on the cross of Christ. You will have heard most likely sermons on the resurrection, perhaps more rarely, but on Easter Day. Uh, How often have you heard a sermon on the burial of Christ? Those verses I've just read, we we read at Easter, but we kind of go straight over them, don't we? We know the cross is important. We know the resurrection is important. And the burial is just a kind of passing time in between. And yet, again, if you've been in, frankly, any denomination, for any length of time, you will have probably said at some point, fairly regularly if you're here at Christchurch, the words of the Apostles' Creed, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was uh, conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. The Apostles' Creed, as we often say, is a a summary of the Christian faith shared by Christians just across the world, across the denominations. There's nothing specifically Presbyterian about it. We're a Presbyterian church. There's nothing 
In fact, that marks the Apostles' Creed out as belonging to any one group of Christians. It is shared by, well, just all of them. And there it is. The burial of Christ is one of the things that is summarized. And the reason for that is that when Paul himself, in that letter to the Corinthians, I've already quoted, when he wrote to the Corinthians, who were having all sorts of problems about all sorts of issues, he summarized the most important parts of the gospel. 1 Corinthians 15, he says this, For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. Now, he's written to them about tongues and prophecy and all sorts of matters that are of secondary importance. Christians disagree on. But of first importance, Paul says, is this, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. Not just death and resurrection, but burial. And yet, if you're anything like me, you've thought far less about the burial than the death and the resurrection. But Christ's burial matters. Perhaps you've been to a burial. It is unlikely to have been a happy day. Uh, The coffin is lowered into the ground. And perhaps the minister has said something like dust to dust, ashes to ashes. Very commonly, at least in England, uh, there's a box of dirt. You put your hand in the dirt and the minister perhaps first and then the family members throw the dirt on top of the coffin. I can still hear it landing uh, on the, uh, the grave of various of my relatives who we've buried over the years. If you've not been to a funeral, if you've not been to a burial... You will go to one, at least one. One day you will be buried. And that is why the burial of Christ is so important and such good news to us. None of us like talking about death. All of us, if we're honest, fear death to some degree. Uh, The Christian in this room who's got the greatest faith, whoever he or she may be, will still to some degree fear death. And many of us will fear death really quite a lot. We kind of know we we ought not to. And that just makes us feel even worse. But we do fear it. Of course, death was never meant to be part of this world, never meant to be part of God's story. Uh, The Bible starts with life. In fact, even before Genesis 1 verse 1, the, the beginning of the Bible, even before this world comes into existence, this universe, there is the God of life. God is a life-giving God. Uh, if you're new to Christian things, if you're kind of scoping them out, really you, you face a choice as to where everything has come from. And there, there are basically just two answers. Either, well, I suppose three answers, either this world has been here forever, but we know science has pretty much re- ruled that out. So either this universe brought itself into being somehow out of nothing. It just sort of created itself. Or there is a God at the beginning who created all things. And it is such good news that that second option is true. God has always existed and he is just abundant with life, overflowing with life. In fact, God is is far more complex, mysterious than we would imagine. He's not just a kind of great big human being in the sky. The Bible tells us that that although there is one God, he is three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And this is great mystery. But but it tells us there is almost a flow of life within God. Jesus, God's son, when he comes to earth, 
says this, As the Father has life in himself, so he's granted the Son also to have life in himself. Do you hear that? The Father has life in himself. He's full of life. He doesn't rely on anything else. He doesn't need food to keep him going or a parent to look after him. He has life in himself. And Jesus says the Father has granted the Son to have life in himself. The Son almost receives his life from the Father. It's not made by the Father. And again, great mystery. But he receives his own self-sufficient life from the Father. If that has just sort of gone way over your head, then join the rest of the church for 2,000 years. But it is an incredible thing that we have this God who is abundantly full of life. And so when he makes the world, it is not surprising that it is a world teeming with life. The oceans are full of creatures from the, the gigantic to the tiny plankton that swarm. The land are full of creatures. The lands are full of creatures. John, the, the giant creatures, the elephants and rhinos, the lions, the giraffes, through to the tiniest bugs and bees that crawl through your hedges. The world teems with life, and human beings are given life too. Again, if you're, if you're not a Christian, have you ever thought about kind of who are we? I'd suggest you again, you basically have two choices. Either we are just stuff. You are calcium and potassium and carbon and oxygen, all kind of stirred together, cooked up in a particular way, but that is all you are, a bunch of atoms. Or, again, as the Bible tells us, and as I think we all know deep down, we are more than that. Yes, we are physical, but we have life breathed into us. That life-breathing God, the Father who gives life to his Son and Spirit, breathes Spirit into Adam in the, in the garden, and he becomes a living being. And the world was meant to be teeming with life and joy and happiness. The grave was all but inconceivable. No death in the world as God made it. And yet... So foolish were we as human beings that we turned away from that life-giving God, tried to go our own way, and as he had warned us, that way led to death. And so for millennia now, death has been in the world. God's warning to human beings back in that life-giving, life-abundant world before the fall. His warning was, if you eat the one tree that I've put off limits, you will surely die. And so when Adam and Eve do it, the curse is pronounced. You will return to the ground since from it you were taken. For dust you are and to dust you will return. And those words have haunted humanity down the centuries. You know this morning you will return to dust. That The scientists are half right. You are potassium and carbon. You are essentially dust. You're more than that, but you're not less than that. And you know your body is not immortal. One day you will go to a funeral. One day you will go to a burial. And so much of our life, I'd suggest, is, is, is driven by trying to just push that thought out of our minds. We busy ourselves with, with work, with family, with entertainment, with Netflix, Noise, 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 noise. So I don't have to think about the grave. In years gone by, you, you might have lived in a little village and everyone trumped along to the, to the village church on a Sunday and you walked through the graveyard. You were reminded that you will die. But not now. At least not for 
many of us in England, I realise there are people from all sorts of nations and cultures uh, in this room, and your experience might be very different. But in England, we've managed to try and push death behind the curtain. But it's just denial, isn't it? It's just denial. Children, do you know that the great Roman generals, if they'd had a really successful campaign conquering another country, uh, they would have a, a triumph, it was called, a big parade. They'd come back to their city. Imagine sort of walking through and everyone's throwing kind of money at them and gifts and clapping and cheering. And they would employ one servant, one slave, to stand behind them. And as the general was sort of riding through Rome in his chariot, the slave's job was just to do one thing, just to whisper every now and again in, in the general's ear, memento mori, memento mori. Remember, you will die. There's loads of wisdom there, but not wisdom we appreciate today. Just imagine the Oscars. I don't know who, I, I, I'm a bit lost on sort of uh, pop culture references, as most of you now know. So uh, Brad Pitt's the only actor I know. So Brad Pitt gets an Oscar. I have no idea if he's won an Oscar, but let's say Brad Pitt wins an Oscar. Can you imagine Brad Pitt coming on stage to receive the Oscar? And just behind him is a little nobody. And Brad's thanking his... Is he still married? I don't know. His wife, his mum, his dad. He's thanking his friends, the Steven Spielberg... One director I know. Uh, and uh, behind him is a little nobody just whispering, you're going to die, Brad. You're going to die, Brad. You're going to die. Glastonbury yesterday. Rick Astley. Again, 1980s. <laughs> just behind him. Never going to give you up. Yeah, you're going to die, though, Rick. You're going to die. You're going to die. The thought of it is laughable, isn't it? And yet, you are going to be buried. Now, that might not be why you came to church this morning. You hope you're a bit more upbeat. But, but actually, joy in the Bible and peace and rest are not found by doing a kind of Christian version of distraction. Just turning up to church and, and, and all the time bouncing around as if nothing bad happens in the world. There is no suffering, no death. Living in a kind of Christian version of denial, that is no use. <laughs> It will not serve you well when the end finally comes. Joy is found actually by facing these deep, dark, scary realities and seeing that God has good news for us through them and in them. And that is what we have in the burial of Christ. Jesus Christ, God's only son, that son who received life from the father, the one who says, I am the way, the truth and the life. The one who is the immortal God came to earth, took on flesh, became one of us, took a heart and kidneys, children, lungs, feet, fingernails. He became one of us. And over the last few weeks, we've seen, well, seen him head towards death. It's actually been pretty action-packed. We've seen Jesus riding into Jerusalem on the donkey, the crowds cheering. We've seen him betrayed by one of his closest friends. We've seen him arrested, whipped, spat at, pulled through a series of kind of show trials. We've seen him stripped, taken out, and crucified. We've seen the earth shake, the, the, dark, the, the skies go dark. It's been action, 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 and now it slows right down with a burial. It is silence. Two words, children, for you this morning. Two words to help us understand the burial of Jesus and ultimately why it's such good news. Uh, all about uh, this tomb. First of all, doom. 
Okay, the tomb is all about the doom of Jesus. And secondly, womb. Okay, the, do, it's a, the tomb is, is doom and it's a womb. Okay, rhymes to help you this morning. First of all, doom. Why is the, 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 the burial of Jesus, the tomb of Jesus, the ultimate doom of Jesus? Well, it shows us first that Jesus really died. He really died. If we're back in uh, Matthew 27, verse 50, we read that Jesus gave up his spirit. And that helps us understand what is literally happening to Jesus here. He gives up his spirit. His soul goes to heaven. The account isn't in this gospel. It's in Luke's gospel. But you might remember there were two, two thieves crucified with him. And he says to the one who turns at the last minute and trusts him, today you'll be with me in paradise. Now that's Friday. Today you'll be with me in paradise. So Jesus' soul, his human soul, goes to paradise, goes to heaven. And none of this stuff about Jesus going to hell for three days or anything like that, that's just medieval nonsense, frankly. His soul goes to paradise straight away. As soon as he dies, he gives his spirit. Into your hands, Father, I give my spirit. But his body, his body is still on the cross. Death, in part, is the tearing apart of your soul and your body. You are not just potassium. And Jesus' body is there on the cross. And so along comes Joseph from Arimathea and asks Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, if he can take the body. It's Friday night. Uh, The next day, Saturday, is going to be the Sabbath, the holy days for Jews. And actually, it's also the time of the Passover. And so they don't want bodies lying around. They can't do anything on the Sabbath. They don't want bodies contaminating. So they, although normally the Romans, when they crucified people, just left the bodies to rot, dumped them on the ground, Joseph comes to give Jesus a proper burial. Jesus' body is taken down, wrapped in linen, and put in this tomb, cut into the rock. As you might imagine, in the Middle East, not that easy to bury people in the ground. We tend to dig holes six foot deep. But, but the Jews, they, they cut into the rock and put ledges in. It's a kind of tomb you could walk in and then put the bodies in. And there goes Jesus. That is extraordinary, isn't it? That is, who, well, let me ask you a question. Whose body is in the rock? Whose is that body? He said, it's Jesus' body. Yeah, 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 yeah. But who is Jesus? He is God. That is God's body in the rock. His human body buried in the ground, back to the dust from which it had been created. Jesus experienced death in all its fullness. He has gone as low, almost literally, as you can get from the throne of heaven and glory, right down, not just to walk among us, not just to the cross, but even into the ground. He's experienced everything it means to come under that curse of God. The day you eat of it, you shall surely die. He knows what it means to go from dust to dust. One writer says this, Jesus' burial didn't merely serve to prove that Jesus was really dead. Although, of course, it does do that. But also to remove the terrors of the grave for the redeemed and to sanctify the grave for them. All the the scary things about death, or, or rather all the ways that death could actually harm you, 
Jesus is taken. He has drunk up all the poison. Death has been defanged, if you like, children. It's like death is like a, a snake coming to bite you. But all the teeth have been taken out. And so now it can do nothing. I remember as a kid, I grew up in rural Dorset. Um, next door neighbours were, were, were farmers. And particularly the farmers' kids were, were my friends. And at carving time, you'd go up the farm and, and they would happily shove their hands in these these calves mouths I was only little these calves are still pretty big I was terrified until eventually Stephen my my mate's dad put my hand in this calves mouth and I was fully expecting to pull my hand out and there'd be no no hand left but the calves have no teeth they're just gums and so you just get this sort of gummy sucky thing it's quite it's quite fun no fangs no bite death has no bite for you now Christian if you've trusted Jesus so yes you fear it I know you fear it but you do not need to, because Christ has drunk all the poison, drawn all the sting. And so we can say, because Christ experienced death as a curse, well, for us, it can only be a blessing. All the curse element has been removed. Now, you still have to die. Uh, every now and again at, at church here, we uh, say some of the questions and answers from the, the Heidelberg Catechism, this series of questions and answers. And, and uh, that, that catechism asks the question I think many of us ask. Since Christ has died for us, why do we still have to die? If he's taken the curse of death, why do we still have to die? And the answer that the, the catechism gives is this. Our death doesn't pay the debt of our sins. Rather, it puts an end to our sinning and is our entrance into eternal life. It doesn't pay the debt of our sins. It's not anything you are owing to God anymore. It's not a punishment for you anymore. Because Christ has taken all of that. Rather, your death now is a transformation. It puts an end to your sinning and is your entrance into eternal life. It is, in other words, a dark, dark gateway, but to a palace of light. As a child, I the first person I can remember dying was my uh, my gran and I was little I was probably about four I guess about three or four and and mum gave us this book and it's it's one of the few things I can remember from through early childhood and it was tr- really trying to help a small child understand what's going on and it was a book all about uh, these uh, uh, I guess kind of um, lava who lived underwater kind of tadpole type things uh, and, and they lived under the water and that's all they knew Life under the water. And every now and again, one of them would disappear. And the others would panic. Where have they gone? What's happened? And the whole point of the story was that the creatures, the little creatures, the little larvae who, who disappeared, they hadn't gone. Rather, they'd gone, hatched, turned into dragonflies or whatever, and, and were existing in a far more glorious mode than they ever had done before. That is the case with death for the Christian. It is no longer an enemy to harm you. It is a friend that will take you to glory. There's a minister in um, Kidderminster called Richard Baxter back in the 17th century. And he was dying. And his friends came to see him. And one of them said to him, Dear Mr. Baxter, how are you? He's on his deathbed. Almost well, he said. Almost well. And that's right, isn't it? He was about to be better than he ever had been. Spurgeon, was, who's a Baptist minister in the, in, in the Victorian era, was commenting on that story and said, death cures. It is the best medicine. 
For they who die are not only almost well, but healed forever. Once you die, you're well forever because the curse has gone on Jesus. Let me ask you a question. How how much fear do you live with? How many things do you fear or, or what things do you fear? For many of us, there'll be much fear in our lives. Lots of things that make us anxious. And I suspect if we were to sit with them and think about them and trace them through, many of them, not all of them, I'm sure, but not all of them, but many of them would lead ultimately to death. That is our deep down fear. That we fear flying or we fear spiders or we fear rejection or there's all sorts of things we fear but push them through far enough follow the the threads and very likely many of them will lead to death we fear the final judgment of death the coldness the silence the rejection and lots of the things in life that that we're scared of are just mini deaths (laughs) little pictures of it little rejections from friends or family or whoever it may be illnesses that are just precursors of death animals or journeys that might kill us and so again just just imagine what would it be like if i was free from all those fears what would my life look like if i was free from all those fears if actually the big shadowy monster behind them all death was no longer an enemy imagine what it'd be like to have that burden lifted and you see how much jesus loves you how much god loves you he didn't deserve death, and yet he voluntarily took it on himself. He came down and down and down and down for your sake. And so whether for the first time or the hundredth time, you can come back to him again today. He offers you this gift of, of removing the curse of death free. It is not a gift we pay for. It is not a gift you earn by doing enough kind of righteous deeds. It is not earned by the strength of your repentance or the solidity of your faith. It is a free gift, he says to you. Let me take that curse from you and all will be well. Even when you tremble, all will be well. Perhaps for the first time today, if you you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, you need to come to the Lord Jesus, God himself, who taken on flesh. And say, yes, I need your death and burial in my place. That is what I deserve. I've sinned. I've not lived as I ought to. I've not honoured the God who made me as I ought to. And there's nothing I can do but save me. And he will say, welcome. You are welcome, child. And when you turn to me, you are safe. Uh, The tomb is the doom of Jesus in order that it might be the blessing of his people. Secondly, much more briefly, it also is also a womb. The tomb is a womb of a whole new world. Do you see in the story, they take real care over the body. Joseph of Arimathea comes, takes the body down, wraps it in a clean linen shroud, puts it in a new tomb, a, a tomb he's cut that hasn't been used. That they care about the body. That is... That may not strike you because perhaps you're used to that in, in, in your own societies, but it is not a sort of universal human thing. Uh, many cultures, the, the body is a kind of encumbrance that you're set free from at death. It's 
some of the ancient religions, some modern religions, that the body is almost just a shell. What really matters is that it is a soul on the inside. And, and when you die, the, the soul is set free and kind of, you, you, are, you are finally free from this sort of horrible body that drags you down. Not so in Christianity. You are your body. You are your body. And Christians look forward one day to a physical resurrection. That's why, if you look through the history of the church, that's why Christians haven't gone down the route of the kind of Vikings or, or some of the Eastern religions burning bodies, but they bury them. Because they know the body matters. Now, let me just say on, on that very quickly, just to reassure anyone who, who's worrying. Um, I know a lot of people are cremated today. Okay, and God is not unable to resurrect those who've been cremated, frankly, those who've died at sea, been blown up at war, that what happens to the body is no obstacle to the resurrection. Okay, so please don't panic. But there is something good about honouring the body that Joseph of Arimathea sees. I don't quite know what he thought. All the women there, Mary, uh, Magdalene, and the other Mary, who was either the mother of uh, Jesus uh, or the mother of some other uh, young men involved in the story, which is not totally clear. I don't know what they were thinking. But I think as you read this bit of Matthew, Matthew is already making clear, or more significantly, the Holy Spirit is making clear that this tomb and the stone are not going to be strong enough to hold the power that's within them. They're already beginning to kind of pulse. It's like the balloon inflating, inflating, and there is just no way the rock and the stone and the steel and the guards are going to be able to hold in Christ. A womb, children, is, is where babies come from, isn't it? It's the source of new life. And this tomb is the womb for resurrection life. All sorts of signs. It's there in the prophecy. If you've got a finger in Matthew, just flick down back to Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53. Well, let me read it to you if you don't want to turn there. Isaiah 53. It's a great Old Testament prophecy of the, the death of Jesus for our sins. And it predicts his burial. Verse 9, they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Jesus will be buried in a rich man's tomb. He should have been thrown into the pit with all the other scoundrels. That's what would normally happen. But no, says Isaiah, he'll be buried with a rich man. And Joseph Arimathea, we're told, is a rich man. Jesus ends up in a rich man's tomb. But Isaiah 53 goes on. Verse 10, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offering. He shall prolong his days. Verse 11, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. In other words, after the offering that this mysterious person who turns out to be Jesus, after the offering he's made of himself, he will see again. He will see his offspring, his children, those who come to faith. In other words, death will not be the end. Isaiah prophesies that the tomb will not be able to hold Jesus, this rich man's tomb. Of course, that's what Jesus himself predicted. Uh, the Pharisees picked that up in verse 68. He said he'd come back after three days. I think it's there in subtle ways too. I don't, I don't know what you make of this. I think there are sort of pictorial pictures there. Pictorial pictures, that's a useless phrase, isn't it? There are pictures there. Uh, pictures there. The tomb has a stone rolled in front of it, and then it is sealed in verse 66. The language is, is, is the same as Daniel 6, when Daniel's put in the lion's den, and a stone is rolled, and there's a seal affixed to it. What happened to Daniel? He went into the ground, he was buried as it were, stone rolled in front, sealed, 
and he comes out alive. Just little echoes. It may be there with Joseph Arimathea, the one other man in the Bible from this particular place, Arimathea, Rimathon in the Old Testament. Is Samuel the prophet, whose very job is to anoint David as king. Here is the second man in the Bible from the same place who has anointed David's great son. He will rise and reign forever. In fact, lots of people, particularly earlier on in, ch- in church history, looked at this passage and, and noticed that it's very similar to the beginning of Matthew's gospel. Jesus' end is very like the beginning. First of all, there's loads of Marys and Josephs all over the place. And just as at the beginning, the Son of God came into the world through a virgin's womb, so he leaves the world through a, a virgin tomb. As one writer puts it, Jesus entered our world through a door marked no entrance and left through a door marked no exit. This tomb is not going to be able to hold Christ, as we'll see next week. And therefore, there are two basic reactions as we wrap up. Uh, one group of people in this passage basically honour Jesus. I don't know what they believed. It doesn't seem to me they thought he was, they were sure he was going to come back in three days. But at the very least, Joseph and the Marys, they, they, they honour Jesus, honour the body, honour the grave. A dangerous thing to do. But then there are the priests and the Pharisees. Do you see them? Uh, they gather before Pilate, verse 62. And it's extraordinary what they say. Verse 63. Sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, after three days I'll arrive. So let's go and put some soldiers. Let's make it really, let's nail planks of wood over the tomb. Let's glue it up. Let's, let's do everything we can to keep it sealed. It's extraordinary. The priests and the Pharisees are doing this. Three times they use that word secure. We've got to secure the grave. We do not want this man back. And they call Pilate. Well, in the ESV, it says, sir. It's the word kyrios. It means Lord. The only people in Matthew's gospel who've been called Lord are Jesus and God. And now the Pharisees, the supposedly religious ones, are calling Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, Lord. God's title. They've gathered together on the Sabbath. They ought to be worshipping in the synagogue. But you see they're gathered together. Verse 62 is one of those kind of religious words. Again, gathering. Not to worship as they ought to. Not at the Passover feast where they ought to be. But they've committed themselves purely to this world. They're calling earthly rulers God, Lord, and gathering together to do his will. What's the point? It's basically a challenge to us, isn't it? It asks us a question, who are you going to call Lord, the rulers of this world or the man who went into the grave for you? If Jesus is still in the ground, you might as well do all you can to prosper in this world before you eventually die and rot away as a sack of carbon. If he is not still in the ground, then there is only one Lord. It's not Pontius Pilate. It's not your boss. It's not our government. It's not the devil. It is the man who was buried and then burst free a day later. So again, let me ask you a question. If Jesus is still in the tomb in Jerusalem, if his bones are still there today, would it really change anything about your life? Or to put it the other way around, has the fact that Jesus' tomb was a womb of a whole new world, the death of the old world, has it changed how you live today? in this dying world? Or are you still living as if this dying world that was actually buried in Jesus is all that there is? Are you essentially calling Pilate Lord?
John Patton was a missionary uh, to the New Hebrides, Vanuatu as it's called nowadays. Uh, and he, he wanted permission to go, to go, and go out there and, and evangelize in that country. Uh, back 100, 100, just over 100 years ago. And someone said to him, he's, he's at this board meeting in Britain, you know, I want to go out there. And then someone said to him, Mr. Patton, this is madness. If you go out there, you'll be eaten by the cannibals. There's cannibals back in those days. Patton says this, I confess to you, sir, that if I can but live and die serving and honouring the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I'm eaten by cannibals or by worms. <laughs> That's faith, isn't it? Now, you might not be making the kind of sacrifices that John Patton is making. But as you go into this week, do so knowing that Jesus is not in the tomb, that death and all your fears have been removed and taken. He has sucked up the poison. And he's opened to you a whole new world, an eternity. And that is the world to live for. Don't call Pilate Lord. Don't live for this dying world that has been buried in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. Rather, put all your energies into the world that will last forever, the kingdom of the Lord Jesus. I'm going to pray as we close. I'm going to use actually a, a written prayer from the Anglican prayer book. that They pray, or if you're a good Anglican, you pray each evening. Comparing going to sleep with dying. That's a common comparison in the Bible. It's almost like every time you go to sleep, you're entrusting yourself, you're practicing for your death. Because you can't wake yourself up, can you? God has to do it. So let's pray and hear the good news. Uh, once more, let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, son of the living God, who at the evening hour did rest in the grave and did therefore sanctify the grave to be a bed of hope to your people. Make us so to abound in sorrow for our sins, which were the cause of your suffering, that when our bodies lie in the dust, our souls may live with thee, who lives and reigns with the Father and the Holy Spirit, one God, world without end. Amen.